This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Eric Koziel, better known as OmniGamer in the gaming world. I was debating Web3 Gaming as a use case, and my good friend told me that Eric knows more about gaming than anyone he has ever met. And I think he lives up to the billing in this conversation. Eric has worked in gaming and cybersecurity since 2012 and is now a game designer at Azra, a Web3 gaming studio. We start this conversation with a tour through the fascinating world of speed gaming before moving into the intersection of gaming and Web3, covering topics like balance between players, speculators, and collectors, the hostility of traditional gamers, and Eric's thoughts on play to win. Please enjoy my conversation with Eric Koziel, OmniGamer. So Eric, the way we got hooked up to meet each other was my partner, Kevin. I was talking to him about gaming and that I wanted to get smarter on gaming. I had all sorts of questions about game design and Web3 gaming and how it would work. And Kevin said, I have the guy for you. You got to talk to Eric. He knows more about gaming than anyone I've ever met. Before we met, I looked you up and it's about speed running. If I didn't know anything about gaming, I sure didn't know about speed running was, but I think it's a fun place to start. Can you explain what speed running is and how in the world you got into it? After getting through college, I was in grad school looking for some way to pass the time. A lot of my friends had gone off their own ways, gotten married, go to different jobs and things like that. You lose out on a lot of the social people that you were playing online games with at the time. And I needed something to keep me going, something that I could be competitive with, something that I can innovate with. And speedrunning was actually something I knew about from much earlier, just in the earlier days of the internet, looking up, how do you play this game really well? And oftentimes speedrunning comes up. What speedrunning is, it's really a type of challenge run where you're trying to pick up an extra set of limitations and really attempt to achieve some goal within the game. Typically that's completing it from start to finish. The speedrunning portion of that aims to optimize those runs for time, which, as it turns out, requires an incredibly deep knowledge of the game in order to make optimal plans, decisions, as well as some hopefully good fingers to be able to pull it off. That was just the thing for me. I actually had a stint as a referee of the company called Major League Gaming when my teens, helping out run tournaments for Super Smash Brothers Melee, which I was in a competitive community for. But by the time I was in grad school, my fingers didn't quite keep up. And that's kind of the thing where you really need to keep up with the circuits to remain competitive. And I wanted something else that I could kind of chase that competitive feeling with. I re-stumbled upon speedrunning, just looking through my board of online digital files from the early 2000s and just set out like, hey, this seems like something I could do. And that was what started it all off. So I was in grad school studying essentially computer security topics. Specifically, I, I 
came out of there with masters in computer engineering, as well as cyber operations. So very ominous sounding things. But what that means is just I have a formal education and understanding how these games work, not only as pieces of software, but the platforms that they'll run on. My background is actually mostly in the hardware end of things. So being able to go in and understand even at the machine code level what's going on, you don't necessarily need to use that for speed running, but that's kind of my superpower, as it turns out, being able to apply those skills towards speed running in a way that lets me get deeper into the game, know the truth about what's going on, as well as finding some extra ways to really push those limits. That was some 10, 12 years ago now, and it's been a blast. And I've had a lot of accolades come out from that. So I'm glad to be an advocate for speed running and kind of a reverse engineering process that I really espouse for it all the way through. The thing that maybe some people have seen is someone playing Mario Brothers really quickly or beating Zelda in a time. But from talking to you, there's much more depth to potentially how you solve these problems or to your point, how you reverse engineer. If I want to go into the mechanics of speed running, how do you even start with what game that you want to approach and do this with? what a lot of people end up seeing is just that finished product. And there's so much work and a lot of times community effort that goes into establishing and getting it to that point. But as far as picking what works, what you might want to pursue, that's a deeply personal question in many ways. For me, it's all about being able to engage in this full process, finding your own diamond in the rough. Like the number one thing is it's a game that you already consider fun, or you can see a way that it is fun for you. Because if it's not fun to begin with, and you're playing it hundreds of times, you probably have a better way to use your time. There's plenty that goes along with that. Beyond just finding something that you personally enjoy, it's about acknowledging what you want to get out of it. Like I said, for me, I want to start with nothing. This game has never been touched before as far as speedrunning is concerned. Limited resources, nobody really knows what might be the best way. I get to uncover the universe of what that game is and really find a way to stretch it to its limits just within my own capacity because it's my way of testing myself. And there is a process that goes into that. It follows a pretty rigorous iterative approach, but all the same, you need data. You need something that you know what the game is before you even start to try to plan out what your route is, is what we typically call it. A route through the game is your optimal plan, your blueprint for what you think is the solution to clearing this goal in the shortest amount of time. And then that says nothing of actually pulling it off, which requires lots of practice. Usually there's some going to be difficult tricks, luck involved with certain elements that either interfere or that you need to just work in your favor. And coming up with that full plan is a blast for me. Other people, uh, you'll get into it because your friends are doing it and you just want to casually compete with them. Some other people yet, it's this is a game you really enjoyed in your childhood. And yeah, you've played through it 50 times, but now you want to experience it in a different capacity. And speedrunning, getting that different goal set is kind of eye-opening in its own way, because you take everything that you know, and you throw most of it out. It's fulfilling for people, gives them a new way to experience something that they already love. The point you made that I find I have a deep amount of respect for is that you look for games where there's very little knowledge already existing. I feel like we live in a society where a lot of people, they want to know the best of something, or you want to solve a problem, you go to YouTube, and 
the internet feels like I can answer anything now with ChatGBT. When you find that game that there's no information on, where do you start? If you find this diamond, no one's played this game. Walk me through the beginning of like how to even start the process. You got to find the fun, first of all. So play through it. Make sure that it doesn't suck in your own experience. Little aside, there are plenty of games out there that people play because they are bad. This is a so bad it becomes good when you put it in the context of speedrunning. But to get into the overall process, once you've played through, you at least understand this is the context that I'm trying to optimize. Okay, now you start to build your toolkit. Means you need to build up the data. If there's no data out there, that means you've got to make it. And this is certainly the less glamorous part for a lot of people. And I don't blame them for wanting to avoid something where they're just iteratively going through and applying scientific method in this case to try and figure out, okay, this attack did this much damage to a boss right now. This boss is going to have this much health and trying to dial that in over and over to find out exactly what those are. I get to take some shortcuts sometime. Being able to reverse engineer, I can go through and pick out the exact data that says, okay, here's the health for an enemy. Here's the size of their hitbox. Here's how high and at what speed you're able to jump. And if it is useful, then you get to use it right there and you don't have to go back through and collect something new or try to guess at what the solution is. So step one, build up your toolbox, understand the contours of the game to the best of your ability. Step two is all about finding the theory. What is the path that's going to get you through to the end fastest? And this is where you leverage your toolbox. You know the data, you know the order that you're trying to go through, and you can start to assemble the puzzle pieces of this is the way that I'm going to go through. There's some amount of testing that goes in here. You don't necessarily know like, hey, is this going this direction faster than this? I'm going to try it a couple dozen times, maybe do some brief timing it out, see if it actually works one way better than the other. There's also elements of consistency that you need to plan for. If luck is an element in this game, you don't want to depend on that one in 100 chance to get the absolute optimal way through. You want to either reduce your reliance on that luck, or at the very least, come up with the backup plans that mitigate your loss from not getting an optimal path. That's actually a huge part of it. And it's one of the places that I enjoy the most because you start to look at what is the minimum set of things necessary. The game developer might've set it up such that you want to be able to go through and just go through each of their own story beats. They say, you need to talk to this person, you need to go to this town, and all of those things have to happen in order, but you get to break that apart in this case. You can start to do things out of order because that's a more optimal solution, even if there's more difficulty associated with it. And putting that together is a lot of fun. And then finally, you get to actually doing it. And you've got this plan, you're going to put it to practice, and probably it's not going to work first time around. And that's okay. You start to pick out on the things that are either too difficult, things that aren't consistent enough, things that just don't feel right. You kind of get this intuition about this is all right, but I feel like there should be a better way. And you start to iterate, go back to your plan. There's things that you don't understand in your plan. So you go back to build up more data and you just work yourself through it until you get to something that feels right. And then you can also execute with a reasonable amount of precision and practice. I love listening to it. And even though we're talking about speed running and gaming, I feel like that process can apply to almost any problem I've tried to solve or work on of gathering the data, coming up with a plan, testing it, 
realizing it didn't work, the tediousness of it all and doing it with something you love. And then I also, I think we'll get into it later about kind of the risk of the luck piece, because it reminds me a lot of investing that you can do all this work and then there's still an element of chance and probabilistic of making the decisions. When you say reverse engineer, I'm picturing like a table that shows if I strike this way, I get this outcome. Like I can picture the table, but I cannot picture how to do it without playing a video game and then my notebook writing down, I did this, this happened, I did this, this happened. Are you able to somehow get that information out of the game in like a much more sophisticated way? The typical case is exactly as you described first, is you're making experiments. You want to establish a control, change something about it, see what happens, and try to either derive the pattern or at the very least figure out what circumstances are leading to the outcome that you're looking for. Or in some cases, you want to know all the circumstances that lead to outcomes you don't want. So start to think about, okay, this is the problem I want to solve. Here's some ways to test it. Oh, that didn't work. Try something different. And even with my skills, I have to fall back to that a lot too. The second part, the game is a set of software. Software has its own set of instructions, and the key is understanding, being able to unpack that from whatever format it is in. So if you can get access to even at the lowest level, it's assembly language. This is the exact machine instructions that are being executed. Most often, that's what you'll have access to. And if you can look into that code, you can get the exact values, the exact formulas, the exact procedures that it's running through and start to pick apart not only what they are, but where some of those limitations are. But they use that to alter the way that the game's going to execute. And so long as whatever they're doing is within the bounds of the system and within the rule sets they're playing by, it's perfectly valid way to go. When you think about reverse engineering and hacking systems, I can imagine in working on research and government projects that when we find stuff like this, or people find like stuff like this, it can be deeply secret. In the gaming world, is it a sense of pride that you figured out this trick? Or is it broadly shared? And everybody like as soon as a new development is found, the gaming world just wants to broadcast it as wide as possible? There's definitely pride in finding new discoveries whether it's a new actual glitch in the system, or it's just simply you found a new way to exploit a developer oversight, something that's normally allowed, they just didn't consider. And it feels awesome, but speedrunning is a public pursuit. You're also kind of sharing the results of your research, as in whatever you did, the proof of it is the video of you performing that run. So one way or another, if you found some way to phase through this block. When you put the video up there, people are going to see it and they're like, whoa, okay, how'd you do that? And there's no benefit to keeping that to chest. There's some historical feelings about keeping competitive advantage, but the point is that we all want to see expert playthroughs of these games in different capacities. The best way to do that is to open it up to the best and widest skill set possible, because maybe you found the way to get through that block, but somebody else takes that and they find ways to go through three other blocks that completely change up how the game is being run. That's the exciting part, is that there's a lot of cooperation and collaboration that goes through with this. But all the same, it's exciting anytime there's anything new, regardless of, of the source. And so when you set these challenges up or these goals, what are the rules? I don't know the right language for this, so correct me where I'm wrong on this. Hacking the system versus exploiting a glitch versus cheating or something that's gone too far or 
when I see stuff like running a speed run with modifications or no modification, like, is there a honor code or is there a set rule of this is the way I beat it if you want to compete with me? It really does just turn into trying to set some kind of standard for comparison. But the standardization comes in the form of what we call categories of speedrun. And that just means here's the set of rules that we aim to abide by for this particular run. And many games can have many different categories. In some cases, dozens of different categories. And it's all just different sets of rules. It's really hard to set up what is a general no-no across speedrunning as a whole, because there are cases of some classic NES games. People actually cook their regular Nintendos while playing. Do you mean actually like heat? They put them on a hot plate. And the purpose in this is that there is a physical property of memory such that it either holds or erases memory much more quickly when it's heated. And they're trying to manipulate some parts of memory such that it retains data in some parts, but maybe not all of it, during certain segments. And that is allowed in that particular community under those particular categories. I find the idea of heating up your gaming system just such a perfect visual. And it makes me wonder how many people are hardcore gamers and just absolutely curious tinkerers versus people who have formal cybersecurity hardware training software that know that heat could potentially have this, so they're going to run a scientific experiment. There's a lot of folks, certainly with computer backgrounds, but a scientific approach to it or formal training and all the rest of that, probably a very small percentage. You don't need those skills necessarily, because a lot of this is still found by accident. You've got people playing these games dozens, even hundreds of times in a day, in some cases, and they're bound to come across some squirrely things sometimes. The key part is remembering that something weird happened, going back and exploring it, and then letting the broader community take their own stabs at it, find other ways that it might work. The case of this hot plate stuff, I don't exactly know how that came about, but probably there was somebody with some electrical engineering background who said, hey, well, if this is so inconsistent, maybe try it this way. That's one of the main things is just having that variety of backgrounds, multiple different sets of eyes to really explore these in ways that Maybe you've been in it too long. You don't see the forest for the trees anymore. And it's exciting to be in that kind of community. What is some of the finds, whether accidental or scientifically, that over your gaming career, when you heard, you were like, that is so clever? A lot of it has to deal with exploiting the random number generation process in some games. There's a big difference between true randomness, pseudo-randomness, all sorts of varieties of randomness. Games just need some randomness. So they'll use kind of a lowest common denominator. In the past, they've used what are called linear congruential generators, which just means they follow a set pattern over a period, and then they start to repeat. To a player, it is effectively random. But you can start to dive in and understand, okay, here's the system. It advances during these kind of actions. So you instead come up with a plan that says, okay, I'm going to do these things. They might not make sense. But it controls the randomness to a degree that I can at least increase the probability of something, or in some cases, absolutely guarantee that the outcome is going to be what I want. And that's notorious in especially some older RPG games where, let's say, they plan on you're going to get a random encounter, and we check that once every step that you take, uh, whether or not you engage with that. And if that's the only time the randomness is advancing, you come up with 
what are called step routes. So you're only going to take certain amounts of steps and then you'll do something else. You'll open the menu, you'll change some equipment around, something like that, whatever moves the randomness to another value. And then you can continue on and you will never get an encounter so long as you're following that route exactly. There's other things, especially in the advent of analog sticks and being able to have more precision style movement where there's only very specific positions of your analog stick that allow something to happen. So you need it exactly at 13 degrees and like a calibrated stick. And then you also need to execute some rotation or a button press or something like that within one frame, which for many games is about 16 milliseconds. So there's a degree of precision there. You can get there with practice. It's still not something you're going to hit every time. And granted, there are tools nowadays that help that to a great degree. Emulators in particular allow people to go in and it's not necessarily you're sitting there with your book and like slightly adjusting your stick and going through, but you can actually go through, you can read the data in memory and know like what's exactly happening, where it's shifting, what position your stick is in, advance frame by frame, try this. If it didn't work, go back with a save state, try two frames later instead. There's a much easier process to go through to get exact results. What's an example of a probabilistic part of a game where it's out of your control, so it's the one in 300,000 or one in a very high odds, and you have to decide, is it worth the risk to do it? Even though the reward's very high, the risk just doesn't make any sense to execute it, even if it could finish the game in a record-breaking time. There's a particular known trick. It's been known for years. And I think to this point, nobody has actually pursued this particular path just because the frustration involved with going after it over and over again, it approximates out to a one in 4,000 chance of being able to execute this properly because you need a one in 100 drop from a particular enemy that you only encounter like once or twice in a section of game that this matters. And from that drop, it needs to generate another item of which there's 41 different possibilities. So it's one in 4,100 that you end up getting exactly the thing that you want. And it's the only thing that will let you move up. This is all about Castlevania Symphony of the Night, which is a classic PlayStation game. Is this a phenomenon that happens on older gaming consoles or are there still methods and experimentations on like PS5 and these newer games? Absolutely. People run plenty of games on PS5 or even on PC. Just pretty much any game that is coming out these days, you can expect there to be runs of it within days of it coming out. The methods to explore these games can be different. Starting to reverse engineer how the game designers are actually building games from their perspective. How much of this is leftover artifacts they forgot versus the game designers also put Easter eggs or think about this stuff? Is this all just accidental behavior of humans trying to design systems that are never going to be fully complete? I think the vast majority are definitely accidental discoveries. And it's not even necessarily on the developers. They forgot something or they didn't test something as well as they could. I mean, games are products. You have a finite amount of time, <laughs> resources. You want the best possible product you can with a sufficient amount of resources to get you there. But you're never going to be able to perfectly button down everything. And even in the security sense of this is a piece of software, the defenders have the hardest job 
because you want to defend against everything. You have the full surface of everything that you need to protect. And an attacker only needs one way in. So if there's that one window that you left cracked one way, people will find it. And the main part is limiting how much that actually damages what's down the line. From a game sense, a lot of it is the fact that there are leftover things, but there's also just oversights. Good games will have plenty of options. And they're not going to necessarily be able to check every option with every kind of scenario. And that's where you start to see these edge cases of things that they didn't consider that really start to make a difference. And sometimes it might be something as small as using this attack in the air gives you a little bit of extra height. And that extra height allows you to get to a new platform that you're not supposed to be able to get to yet. Okay, there you go. That's a skip. You didn't necessarily break anything about the game. You just used things that were already in there in an unintentional way. That's a lot of what it boils down to, being able to find those pieces and make the best use out of them for your given purpose, which is completing the game optimally uh, for time. Now, getting your professional life, you're working at a gaming company and helping them think about this. I'm curious how you think about user or an attacker, but like this sort of adversarial nature. You're thinking about an adversary. And so when I think about hacking into a government system, I think about bad guys. But now you have clients that are playing, your customers are the ones. So I'm curious how you think about the adversarial relationship between the designer and the player or the hacker and the system. A lot of that has to go with what you're trying to secure. Some developers might come to the conclusion that this is my curated gameplay experience. I want this game to be experienced only in the way that I'm prescribing. And they'll try to button down everything else that exercises around that. In my personal opinion, I don't think that's a valuable pursuit. Let's just treat games as an art form. Take that as a factual basis, that people will experience the games in the way that's most enjoyable to them, whether that's developer curated or not. And so if people are having wonderful fun with your game using things that you didn't intend, you should allow that because that's still what's engaging for them as a product. Where it starts to become trickier are things where it ruins the experience, especially if it's something that a player can stumble on just playing casually, not trying to break the game, but they tripped in a weird spot or they used an attack here. And because of some weird way that the environment is set up, suddenly you've crashed the game or you've made it so that you can't actually get to the completion of the game. That's a ruining experience for a customer. And you definitely want to button down as many of those as you can so that People can always get to the end or they're never locked into some mode. And the other side of it is where you're in a multiplayer environment, whether that's cooperative, competitive, you're going to have instances where if players are exploiting elements of your system to gain unfair advantages, which is something that other players that aren't expected to have at least some level of knowledge of the game can't exploit in the same way, then you have an imbalance. And that's something worth fixing, or at the very least, worth mitigating what damage can be done from those scenarios. Because again, you're not going to be able to get every single one, but you can at least try to mitigate what happens when something like that does occur. From our perspective, and additionally, we're in the Web3 space. We have to think about our customers not only as the players, but these are customers with assets that need to be protected. And that's something that we need to think about from not just the idea of buttoning down all the hatches, but even some of the places that I add a lot of value to what we're doing is that I approach it from, I'm going to be that guy. 
who goes through and looks for the exact optimal way to do something? What's the way that I can exploit this to get the most effective way out of it? Because that's exactly what a lot of our Web3 oriented customers will try to do. We don't necessarily want to completely disallow that, but we want to make sure that they're at least on a fair level with other people in the same space. And buttoning down as much as we can by pursuing that perspective up front is one of the realities of trying to play in the Web3 space, because it's not just the player experience that gets ruined, it could be real value that gets lost. I think from headlines, an observational view, it feels like traditional gaming or Web2 gaming, whatever you want to call it, has had a negative reaction to Web3. What's your take on where that comes from? Oh, there's a lot to unpack with that. Broadly, it's still just misunderstanding of the things that are allowed, that Web3 actually has a gain, a value add over the traditional Web2 space. And a lot of that is going to be the fact that there hasn't been anybody to get it right yet with gaming, particularly the gaming crowd. They're typically technically oriented. They may not be completely technically savvy, but they know about things going on in tech. And so they've heard about NFTs, but then there's also just the way that social media and otherwise allows people to bandwagon very quickly. And on the crypto side, there's negative attention towards it, at least traditionally with proof of work oriented protocols. Oh, it's bad for the environment, things like that. So it's immediately starting at a deficit, but then there's also just, they don't understand that uh, right-click save as is still a big meme in that crowd. Okay. You've got the NFT. That's fine. I'm going to save the JPEG to myself there. I own it. What do you have that I don't know? And it's the understanding that this is an asset that exists on the chain that has value. And because of its transactional nature, because of the immutability of its provenance, a lot of that has value beyond what they're seeing, which is just, here's something that I can have an instantiation of on my own. And I don't see where that's coming from. And it's going to be setting up the role of the utility of these things that really starts to kind of make the headway. And I think that's where a lot of the negative pieces come from. But I think a lot of gamers were also burned early on by some of the failures in the space. I'm not sure how familiar you are with some of the most notable Web3 gaming enterprises. Originally, there was CryptoKitties. CryptoKitties is fine, tradable. You breed some cats and they all exist as NFTs. Great. Up until the point that you realize that I think at one point it was more than 25% of all of Ethereum's block volume was going to CryptoKitties transactions. And the gas prices skyrocketed as a result for that time. They had to figure out ways to set that up because it was kind of clogging the entire network. So there's technical limitations to trying to use that that people need to figure out. Later on, you've got Axie Infinity. This is kind of the start of the play-to-earn era, as it's be called. And that's one of the things that they actually marketed is you start off, you purchase some things, but you can continually engage with that and it will generate more return for you by way of some of these tokens, by way of breeding and selling to other people. And I think a lot of those issues is that they started with what they wanted as an economic model and then tried to map a game on top of it. It worked until it didn't because the economic model was flawed to begin with. There had rampant inflation and it was fine so long as they had new players coming in for as long as that held up. And then new players stopped. The inflation kept going. Players didn't drop off. You have a crash of their entire model. 
they try to figure out and dig themselves out, out of it afterwards. That kind of thing bothers a lot of people. You tell me, hey, I want to get in and play this game. It's going to have maybe a higher upfront cost than I'd play on a console game. But you have that inherent risk of, well, what if it just turns into Ponzinomics and things are going to fall out afterwards? And that frightens people. Even informed people in the crypto space, they don't want to engage with something where their assets could just belly up like that. So where it's turning into now, and especially what we're trying to do with our company, is it's all about the gameplay. You need to have the compelling game as the core story, and then find the ways that you get the value add from having NFTs, from having tokens, from anything else. It's a much more measured approach. And from our own perspective, our entire studio is just filled to the brim with prior gaming development talent. So we're not approaching it from the purview of a bunch of economists trying to figure out some neat way that this could all work together. We're making a game and the game will be fun. And we want to make sure that the Web3 experience is substantial on top of that, which kind of brings me to another thing is that the gaming population and the crypto enthusiast population are not the same. There might be overlap, but the things that a crypto enthusiast wants, maybe a lot of them are looking for fun utility, but I would say just by nature of money, the majority are looking to be speculative. They want to get a return on their investment and find whatever is going to do that with most efficiency. A gamer wants an engaging experience. They want something that is going to be refreshing content, something that's going to be fun, recurrent for them, that's going to have value for them beyond just the value that they put in for either purchase price or continual cost of engagement. And mapping those two things, they actually compete quite a bit. So you have to please both audiences, maybe in separate ways, to make a compelling game, and at least to our experience, that hasn't been done yet. But there's plenty of room to innovate and make that possible. We just dive into that a little further. I remember a chart I saw on, I forget who wrote the report, but it was basically talking about Pokemon and how successful of a brand it is to try to balance the speculators, the players, and the collectors. And what they were saying is that the cards that might have like the most value, collectible value, aren't necessarily like, you know, I don't know if it was like a rainbow Charizard thing, but that's something that's of value because it's scarce. But if Eric was going after playing the best Pokemon tournament game, he would not mostly use that. And I think even in CryptoKitties, they had Mystic Kitties. They tried to like do that. I guess what I'm trying to understand is this is a super hard problem. Nobody solved it. But some of the areas that you need to balance so this doesn't just tip over and collapse on itself. I agree. You need a good game. And that seems like a thing that everybody wants. But I see kids that collect Pokemon. I see kids that trade Pokemon. I see less kids that even play it. And it seems to be a very successful franchise. It seems to be solvable, but I'm trying to understand the core elements of why something like that works. It's hard to tell what works because a lot of it is subjective. You can tell that certain cards are going to have high value because they are scarce. I'm moderately familiar with the Pokemon trading card game space. In my youth, I collected. I still have some binders somewhere. There's a fun element to just collecting. And that's part of the game and toy experience is to have more, to expand your options. And part of that comes from a competitive edge is you want more stuff because then you are able to build a deck with different things, maybe explore different options, things like that. 
But the truly competitive people already are past that. They know exactly what the deck it is that they want, exactly the way that they're going. And if they don't have it, then they can purchase it as a one-off or anything like that. The speculators or anybody else who wants some of these potentially very, very rare, very valuable, they're looking for the exclusivity. And it's not necessarily the designed exclusivity. It's the little things too. There's a first edition base set Charizard, which is, I think, what you were alluding to as a particular holographic foil. There's only X number that were produced. And since it was the first set, they're among the oldest and probably the most battered from little kids playing with them at this point. But they still have that same, that maintain a high floor price of for some of these particular cards because they have that eminence of power. There's some subjective extra pizzazz to them. So it's not every single holographic first edition card from the base set is super valuable, only the ones that have something that means something to people. And it could be that Charizard had an extra presence in the anime. So people associated extra power to Charizard. At the time, that was the card that could deal the highest damage. So people are like, oh, there's just something inherently powerful that makes me want Charizard. Yet others is they take things that are less notable. So there's a market for misprints across Pokemon, across many other trading card games, where it's these are cards that had just mechanical issues making them. There's a very limited amount. Nobody knows even how many misprints of a given type there are, but it's something that if you uncover it, you notice that the border's a little off here. They changed the font on this one unnecessarily. This one's only half holographic. Like those things matter to people because it's different, it's unique, and that's what they really go for. And you can do that market by design, but ultimately, even with looking at Axie Infinity, even looking at CryptoKitties, you can't necessarily know what the value of something is other than people want it because they have some other inherent attachment that goes beyond what the floor price is. On the imbalance of it, does the introduction of Web3 make you queasy into gaming? Is this just a new challenge? Because I think there was a myth. I don't know if it's true or not. I've read it a couple of times, so don't quote me, but that Vitalik was a huge World of Warcraft player. And one of the things he exclaimed before he like entered the Teal Foundation, I think, was something like, it's ridiculous that I don't own all of my things in World of Warcraft. Those are mine. I've built those. And they should be composable. And that this really all, I don't know how true this is, but this kind of stemmed from a gaming thing that these big game studios keep all your assets and that they're all in-house. And so one of the ironies is even though there might have been burned attempts by prior things, a dislike for speculators and money, it also seems like one of the groups most able to understand that that money is going to gaming studios and that there's in-game economies happening. And whether it's the gray market where people sell weapons or skins or however they do it, it is surprising that people don't understand that. And I guess from your perspective, being a gamer, understanding Web3, what parts about Web3 excite you? What parts make you nervous or queasy? How do you personally feel about it? The things that make me nervous are having it done poorly. And this is something that we at our studio have had to grapple with quite a bit, just as far as what even makes sense to turn into an NFT, because there's different types of value all around and different games have tried these to different extents. But logically, yes, if you bought some sword or whatever in World of Warcraft, you paid money for an asset. You should have perpetual ownership of that asset in some other ways of thinking. If you take it out of World of Warcraft as a digital representation, and instead this is Dungeons and Dragons, and you're playing with model kits, you own that sword. 
might be a little trinket thing, but you still carry it with you. It's part of your permanent repertoire toy. That's, I think, what people are kind of missing is that you can go from this is a purely digital experience to this is a digital experience with that physicality almost of having assets that can travel with you beyond the game that are outside of the strict control of that game. Because being in the enthusiast gaming space, one of the big challenges right now is that it's hugely difficult to keep up proper archival practices for video games because there's all these online services now. When a company sees it as no longer profitable, they take the servers down. That game ceases to exist. There's all sorts of efforts by various people to try and not only capture the context of those games over years, but also to set up, let's say, fan-run servers. The game ceases to exist unless you can set up some other third-party servers or something else that will communicate in whatever expected language it is. And this actually happened with, I guess, looking into World of Warcraft, there was a time when classic World of Warcraft turned off. And it was a huge event, actually, across gaming. Since then, I think there's been some discussions, or maybe even they've started up their own server again for people who want that flavor of experience that's different from the modern version. But that's just an ongoing piece. Some people have actually proposed using the purchase of a game as kind of its own NFT. Like that is a contract to access the game so that even let's say that there's some server software that they agree to release later on in some capacity, but it still requires a legitimate purchase. You own that perpetual license to access that server and engage with it, even after, let's say, the company no longer sees it as a feasible way to keep it running. That's a little aside from that. But things that are exciting are still going back to being able to treat the assets in these games as physical pieces, toys that you maintain control of. And even after the game might disappear or the context of the game changes, they release some new patch and the metagame is now completely different. What was valuable before it isn't valuable in the competitive sense anymore. These things happen all the time. You still have what you paid for. The value of it might still be up to whatever the speculative markets say that value is. But the point is that you have some way to gain return. That's on assets. Another way to look at it is that the time that you invest in a game most often even for free-to-play games, is worth something. You want to be able to extract that value back to yourself. That is something that has been tried and has the big issue of time is worth different things across the world. You have economies of scale where the time of a person in the US is going to be vastly more expensive than the time of somebody in Vietnam, in the Philippines. And this is actually something that happened with Axie Infinity where it became significantly more beneficial per time spent in the game to basically farm out your accrual of assets to people in those other countries, Southeast Asia and elsewhere, where they would essentially play for you. You'd get returns off of their activities. And it actually worked out reasonably in those countries because they could gain a living wage from doing these activities that wouldn't be a living wage in the US. But it does mean that there is that imbalance of time. And if the thing that you're supposed to be gaining from participating, engaging with the game is that enjoyment of it, but it's not valuable to you, it's more valuable to farm it out than it is to do it yourself. That's a different gaming experience. And that's something very difficult to grapple with. So you have to be very careful about deciding these are the resources that we think should be tradable 
on the blockchain market. These are the assets that we think should be tied to accounts versus open up. And there's also always the issue of supply, figuring out if you're going to make something in NFT, how much do you actually care about maintaining floor price? Do you care that you can print unlimited numbers of these things? And if you start to say, no, I don't care, then how are you supposed to make that case to the speculating class who's going to try and pick up these assets in the purpose of hoping that they accrue value? It's a lot to balance. It is. I find the economic one super interesting. I spoke with Axie right at the height of it. And my questions kept coming back to this idea, ironically, because Geo had written a paper about Alexander Hamilton and central bank theory, which I thought was fascinating. Everyone knows him as like the super fan that I forget his role, but he was high up at Axie. I said, there's no central bank except, you know, the decision of inflation versus deflation. But it seems like developing a game is hard enough. Now you have to balance a game and an economy at the same time. And that seems even more challenging. I think for the type of games that you're talking about, where it's game first, speculation, maybe second, or it's handled in a different way, how does this notion of pay to win factor in? I hear a lot about well, you could have skins or you could have cosmetic features or maybe resources. But what you don't want is for someone to be able to buy a $100,000 sword and win the game. One of the major differences between gaming and speculation is skill or the ability to put an effort in time. So how do you feel about pay to win? There's two things actually I want to address there. And it's not necessarily like an order of priority when you're developing. I think that it's much more, you start with the product that you want but you're also realizing the factors that you want to engage with it. And this is something that comes up all the time in the security field, is that it's not like you build a product and then you find your magical sprinkles and you bake the cake, you sprinkle on some security later, it's all good, done, everything's great. The same thing applies with Web3. You can't just take a game that was built with these as the foundations and you're like, ah, okay, these things are Web3, done, ship it. That's just asking for failure. And a lot of it, comes from the idea that you need to establish what things should be Web3, what things should be core experience, and building it up from there. As far as pay to win, pay to win is actually kind of a difficult topic because it means so many different things. In a competitive game, pay to win is literally you get access to an advantage because you've opened your wallet versus somebody who wants to engage with at least the bare purchase price. And even though there might be a difference in skill, that difference in skill cannot be overcome or at least might be mitigated by the fact that somebody else put in money. And that feels bad. There's other sides of pay to win too, even in a single player experience, where you still want people to come away with a certain experience from the game. You want them to come away and feeling like they've done something fulfilling, they've grown, they've been able to master the systems in some way. But if you opt for certain paid exclusives, accelerators are probably among the most common ways to pay into those kinds of games, or even just raw equipment, something that you would otherwise have to devote your time to. These are sold as ways to bypass doing some amount of effort, tedium. It's your way to skip the grind is how it's often put. And what people from that is that, okay, yes, you can pay to skip the grind, but that means that the developer intentionally went in and made it so that the game was grindy. You've hobbled the experience for the average player in the hope that they will buy into a premium experience, which is more of what the game should have been to begin with. And they feel that. It's hard to message that away once it's there. 
it's a difficult thing to tackle. You still need to make a return on these pieces, but you don't want to hobble your experience. You don't want to create pathways to the top of the leaderboard. You don't want to ruin these experiences by the introduction of some monetary piece in the middle. And so you find other ways that allow people to still experience the game on a free-to-play level. They don't feel like they've spent their entire day just grinding to get enough tokens, pieces of apples, whatever, to be able to buy their next sword. And there's pieces of that that all go into, again, the value of your time, but also it's a different proposition when you start to put it in the Web3 context of, yes, you can throw in the money and you immediately have progression or you have some other piece. But what if you threw in the money and you still have that investment? It sticks around. If you decide like, hey, that wasn't good. I'm not gaining what I thought I would from that investment. You still have the option of putting it back out into the market. You have control. And that's kind of the valuable piece there where even let's say developers aren't going to set up and make a perfect game to start. There's going to be mistakes, but you at least offer people the means to get back some. They don't feel like they've simply lost something by throwing in their fiat and getting out apples that turn out to not be valuable. You're touching on something that's really striking to me of the notion that economics are always necessary in gaming. Someone has to pay for the game design and the return and all the work. And this is what I think fascinates me about Web3 is the experimentation with new economic models, not just the pure speculation part. It feels like talking to people more like adults than children in the sense that the whole freemium game thing is, oh, yeah, yeah here's this free game. My friend was showing me a, a game on the phone that they let their kids play. And they're like, look at this thing. Every three minutes is asking for money. You can't play this game for more than 180 seconds before a thing comes and offers a package or a reward. And it's like a flashing casino addictive behavior. That's a web app game. And that's what we've come to expect because that's how they monetize or they're selling your data or like the thing about the Web3 thing. And I do think it's a tough spot for people to get there, but I hope that someone breaks through and shows it is that the part that I find I enjoy is a transparency of knowing what's going on. Okay, they're charging for things. That money goes towards something. And I'm paying, I think people would pay hard-earned money for things that they really, really enjoy. Your example about keeping the server on or making the game more accessible for people. Like, I do think there's something there and I hope someone figures it out. Absolutely. It's tough too, because there's competing principles that you want to try to preserve all around. Even with some of these games, to maintain high floor price, a lot of times you're launching a new NFT project, you want to keep maintain that exclusivity and promise of future benefits, things like that. But exclusivity is tough in gaming because it's still a product. You develop content, whatever that content is, a character, a sword, a music track, whatever it is, you want that to go to as broad of an audience as possible because that's where you get return on. If you're making a lot of content, which costs a lot of money to develop, and you lock it away behind, hey, you need a board aid to be able to do this. That's one, a really high bar to climb for anybody. But are you actually banking on getting a return on all that development effort that went into making that content based on the slim subset of people that are able to access it? It's a really hard sell, especially even to investors that are trying to build up a case for continuing investment in the games and otherwise it's tough to grapple with. And that's why you want to also 
feed that speculative class on the crypto side with things that are important to them while also still maintaining some way to access the content, say, if you don't buy it, if you don't have an NFT, you don't block away access behind something, but the speculative class still needs something exclusive, something that they feel is powerful for them. It's a lot to thread. It is. And I think you guys are onto something with the type of team you assembled, especially with you joining. This has been a lot of fun, Eric. We end these with, what are you most excited to build or help build whether it's an Azure or C in this in the in gaming space over the next six months and over the next six years? Over the next six months specifically, I'd love to see something come out that is a successful app. It doesn't even have to be a game, but just some app that exists on a blockchain and provides benefits and all the rest of that, but doesn't need to proclaim that it's crypto. Because that's where there's going to be a bunch of wins is when you can get that transparent onboarding and user experience, when they can be doing something that they feel is meaningful, that they get value from, that is on the blockchain, but they don't have to know that. They can go and look up their transactions and all the rest of that if they are excited about it. But the main thing is that it's providing those benefits without them having to be concerned that these are NFTs that I'm working with. This is something that's exchanging tokens and gas, whatever is going on in the background. If that can be transparent, that's a huge win for just about everybody, I think. In six years, it's the extension of that. You get to the normalization where it's no longer a crypto game or crypto app isn't just that unicorn or the weird thing that only people who really know about it use you've got multiple killer apps. People just don't question the value. They take it for granted in the same way that cell phones are nowadays. It's that something new, that value add that once it clicks with people, I hope it actually sticks around and people start to really get excited about that outside of purely the space that knows about it and keeps up on it and speculates on it now. Awesome. Eric, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 